This morning, as we're back in the book of Romans, I want to encourage us to think about the unity of the church. The unity of the church. The unity of the church is a precious experience. Unity in any church is a precious thing. The unity of just think about unity in, in our families, in our physical, biological families. The unity of a, of a family is such a precious experience. And you know how precious it is, particularly in times when it's absent. You feel how precious it is, not so much when there's unity, but when it's lacking. Going home, opening the door, and having painful conversations. Interacting with family members, whether it's a spouse or children or parents or cousins or aunts or uncles, where the comments are described by snappy remarks, by hurtful phrases, by arrogant comments, by judgmental impressions, or simply nasty, hurtful replies. And sometimes even when those are not verbalized, and yet they are held within our minds, those thoughts and attitudes affect our interactions with one another. You realize how precious unity is, particularly when it's lacking. Those same interactions that we might experience in our family dimensions can often happen and, often do happen in the life of churches. No one likes attending churches where unity is missing. No one wants to be a part of a church family or church relationships that are interact or, or characterized by judgmentalism, by attitudes of looking down on others, by snappy comments, hurtful phrases. And yet, we know that in a sinful world, in churches populated by sinful members who continue to be sinful even though we have been redeemed by the grace of God, in churches made by sinners like me and like you, it is natural and common to hurt each other, to make comments, to interact with one another in ways that are dysfunctional and hurtful. How do we as a congregation and how do any church, how do churches cultivate an attitude and, and behaviors that foster unity. And not just any unity, not just unity for the sake of unity, but particularly gospel unity. This morning, we want to look at the theme of fostering gospel unity. And we see this in Romans chapter 14. I'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 12. Romans chapter 14. Now, the argument that Paul is making in this chapter deserves to be treated as a whole chapter. The sermon would be way too long uh, to be covering all of this chapter in one sermon. 
and there's just too many things that we want to go a little slower through this chapter. So therefore, I'm just covering the first part of this chapter, verses 1 through 12, fostering gospel unity. Let's read God's word in Romans 14, verses 1 through 12. Here's the word of the Lord. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes a day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow before me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word and our hearing that we would hear well. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you have given us this word to help us live in unity with one another. Father, help us to do so well. Father, help us to hear this word well and help me to proclaim it with the clarity that you have intended. I pray that you would assist me in making this word known on behalf of Christ. Father, I need your grace to proclaim this word. Would you speak to me and through me and would you speak to us all? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Friends, I need to tell you that I am preaching this word not merely to you, but to myself. I need this word just as much you need this word. The, the reasons that cause divisions of, in our gospel unity are many. The, the reasons that, that hinder our gospel unity are many. We will not cover them all this morning. One of the causes uh, of our lack of unity, our gospel unity, one of the reasons that hinders our gospel unity is understanding the role of the Christian's conscience 
under the Lordship of Christ. When we have a faulty understanding of the role of the Christian conscience under the Lordship of Christ, we will be more inclined to engage in divisions and dysfunctional behavior in the life of the church. This is not the only reason that causes dysfunctional behavior in the life of the church, but it is one of them, and Paul is dealing with that topic here. Romans 14 is a key passage to help us think biblically about the Christian's conscience and how to live in gospel unity with Christians whose consciences are slightly or significantly different than ours. And yet, those consciences must be equally under the Lordship of Christ as revealed in God's Word. For some people, the conscience that they have is way broader than what the Word of God says. And for those, we need to encourage one another to guard our conscience and to recalibrate our conscience to match the Word of God. For others, our conscience is smaller, more narrow than the Word of God says. And we want to be careful that we don't allow our consciences to be so narrow that we create a more, uh, a more narrow canon of Scripture. That we actually have a, a more favorite selection of passages of Scripture that gives us a more narrow standard of God's Word than the standard He has given us in this Word. When Christians have different views and their consciences are, are different about matters that we see in God's Word, that's when debate and division can show up. And Romans 14 is a passage that helps us think through biblically how as Christians we ought to live in unity when our consciences are different about certain matters. How can we welcome one another in faith when we have different convictions without quarreling about those opinions? Now, there's a few clarifications I need to make when we deal with about, about matters of conscience. Paul is not dealing here with just any differences that we might have as Christians. For example, he's not dealing here with differences about how we understand the gospel, what defines the gospel. When Paul was dealing with Christians and churches that were in danger of distorting the gospel, there is, this is, that, that's not a, a conversation about differences of conviction. He makes it very clear in the churches of Galatia, if anyone would preach to you a different gospel than the one that has been preached to you, let him be to you an anathema. So we're not dealing here with differences over what is the gospel. That has to be super clear. We must defend the gospel. We must be clear on the gospel. We must protect the gospel. Also, he's not dealing with matters of key Christian doctrines. When churches throughout in the first century were dealing with various threats to important doctrines of the faith, 
whether it would be the future resurrection of the body of the believers or with syncretistic tendencies, Paul would write letters confronting the error and correcting the believers. And we see most of the New Testament is written with letters in which there is some level of correction. So key doctrines of the faith must not be matters of mere conviction that we agree to disagree on. Practically for us, what that looks like is every local church should have a statement of faith where they summarize what they understand from Scripture to be the key doctrines of the faith that characterize the unity of that local congregation. So when we think about distinctives or differences, we're not dealing with differences in matters of the gospel or matters of statement of faith, key, uh, key convictions. In our own history as a Baptist church, let me just give an example. In our own history as a Baptist church in the 1960s, leading into the 70s, Baptist churches have divided over our understanding of the doctrine of Scripture, some claiming that the Bible is, is not without error. And rightly, this convention of churches that we now call the Southern Baptist Convention, though it's not a perfect convention, in the 1960s and 70s, fought over recovering the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture. We had to fight over that. I'm glad we fought over that. Because if we're not clear about the inerrancy of this book called the Bible, the, the revelation of the Word of God, we are in big trouble. If you have questions about that, I'd love to talk to you more about that. But when it comes to the key doctrines of the faith, it's not a matter of, let's just agree to disagree um, and to, uh, to just have different convictions. We must be clear about the key doctrines of the faith. And there's another category also that fits in this clarification. So gospel issues, statement of faith issues, and thirdly, fighting sin fighting sin. Paul is very clear throughout the New Testament that when it, when it comes to the, the need to fight our sin, our sinful tendencies in our own hearts, uh, there is no debate. Uh, we should not be loose in our fight against sin. We should not be loose in our pursuit of holiness. When one church was in danger of thinking loosely of sin and allowing members in the congregation to go on with unrepentant sin, Paul confronted them in a very clear, firm way and called them out. If you want to know more about that, go home and read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So we're not, when, when we're dealing with debates or differences of opinions, we are not dealing with gospel issues statement of faith issues, or fighting sin. When we put those aside, clarification, yet there's a host of other things in the Christian life that we might have different opinions on and about. How do we as Christians pursue unity in, in those areas that we are very easily tempted to fight over? Let me just give, up a, few, give a few examples of areas that we are tempted to divide over. Uh, think with me for a moment, just over the last two, three years, 
about how Christians have disagreed whether or not during the pandemic we should wear masks. Looking back, shepherding this congregation through that time was very difficult. Some of you were, were very adamant about the, 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 the wisdom of needing to wear masks. Others were very animate and convinced of the opposite extreme. How do we agree to come to worship and how do we agree to live as a united body when we have very different convictions about whether or not we should wear masks or whether or not we should get vaccinated? In the last four or five years, Christians have been very divided over issues of politics, over issues of race, over issues of how to think through social justice. And these are just some of the areas that we can divide over and we have divided over the last few years. Beyond just the last few years, think about how we can, be, can have different convictions in how we think about education. Should, should parents send their children to public school or private school or homeschool? It's not uncommon for people who send their kids to homeschool to feel very, very strong about that and assume that anything else would be throwing your kids to the lion's den. Well, that's very, those are very strong convictions, but we must figure out a way how to live in unity and allow for differences of conscience of how to live with that situation. Or think through, for example, how we may think about alcohol. And there's a host of other things we can talk about what we might disagree over. Scripture is super clear about the sin of getting drunk. But there are Christians who have different opinions about what about drinking before getting drunk. If you want to talk more about that, happy to talk to you after the service. There's a host of things we can get tied up on. What matters? What doesn't? And the way Scripture convinces us for ourselves, we have a tendency to extend that same conscience as a standard over others as well. Oh, friends, consider the reality that so many of our convictions that we develop and have, while it is good for us to have them, at times they can actually threaten our unity. They can be reasons that cause our gospel unity to be fractured. Can you think in your mind, what are some of the divisive issues that you feel sensitive over these days? Think in your mind. What are some of the things you care about deeply? And by the way, the things you typically care about deeply, most deeply, are going to be in the category of areas that you should look very carefully. How you extend those convictions to others and expect others to live by your same convictions. This text is teaching us about the why and the how of living in gospel unity in the local church when we have different opinions about those charity issues. One, one Bible teacher put it beautifully. He, he called it a, a biblical triage uh, in which he put three levels of, of unity that we must hold on to. 
And it's important for us to be aware of these three distinct levels. The very top level is a gospel issue unity. We must uphold those things together for someone to even be a Christian. Then there's a second tier. Uh, we might call it statement of faith issues or uh, local church level issues. For example, do we believe that we must uh, baptize believers only or infants? Well, Baptists and Presbyterians will answer that question very differently. In order to be a church, in order to act as a church in how we practice the life of the church, we actually could not be in the same church with those who have different convictions on this question because we're going to have to decide, are we going to baptize infants or not? And if we are convinced in one direction towards infant baptism, then we should be okay to, to constitute, to gather together as a local church around the practice of infant baptism. And that's what our brothers and sisters in Presbyterian churches do. We, Baptistic churches, have a different conviction over that. So we agree that baptism is a key doctrine that we should have clarified as a love of the church. Those who are in Presbyterian churches hold to a true understanding of the gospel. We're not baptized, by, we're not saved by baptism. And therefore, we are able to call each other brothers and sisters in Christ, but we are not able to be in the same church together. So the second tier would be statement of faith or local church level distinctions that affect how we're going to live together in the local church. Another category in this would be, for example, do we believe that a pa the office of a pastor is to be uh, filled only by men as qualified by Scripture, or uh, can it be filled by women as well? Well, how we answer that question will affect whether or not we can be united in the same church. That's an important question for us to wrestle with. Those would be second-tier issues. That's what a statement of faith defines and clarifies. But outside of that, there's a third-tier issues, and this is called the, all the other opinions and preferences and convictions. And this third-tier issue should be called charity issues. In other words, we, we may feel strongly and fervently about a particular issue, but we also agree to live in charity with others who disagree with us about those issues. Uh, the timing of the return of Christ, whether there will be tribulation or not. Uh, there's a host of things that we may put in this category, but we want to be clear about what are in this last third tier of issues. So, in light of this, this is a long introduction to what our text is about. This text is teaching us how to foster gospel unity. And I might summarize the first 12 verses that Paul has, has given us here that we've read in this way, foster gospel unity by refraining from despising or judging fellow believers in your church. Foster gospel unity by refraining from despising or judging fellow believers in your church. We see in this passage the why, why should we foster gospel unity, and the how we should go foster gospel unity. 
the why we should foster gospel unity and the how we should foster gospel unity. We'll see two reasons why we should foster gospel unity, and we will see three ways we should foster gospel unity. Two reasons why we should foster gospel unity. Reason number one, because God has welcomed us in Christ. Because God has welcomed us in Christ. Look at verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Do you see that? The first reason why we should foster this gospel unity is because God has welcomed us. God has welcomed the one we are tempted to disagree with, even though we are united in Christ, in faith. And notice who we're dealing with here. We're dealing with Christians who have been welcomed into fellowship with God. What a grace this is. Now, throughout the book of Romans, from the beginning of the book of Romans, Paul has clarified to us how we are welcomed by God. It's exclusively by faith in Jesus Christ as our substitute who died in the place of our sins, who paid the penalty that we should have paid. And he was raised from the dead to bring not only himself to life, but to bring us the life that we desperately needed to have because we have died in our sins. Because the wages of sin is death. We deserve this death ourselves. Yet Jesus died in our place and he raised, was raised from, by God from the grave in order to prove that he is the sufficient sacrifice. Oh friends, when we put our faith and trust in this Jesus who died in this way as a substitute for us, God welcomes us. He receives us into his fellowship. He receives us as members of his family. Oh, friends, we get to, to have this clean record, not because we have done anything to make it clean, but because Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived. His clean record is counted for us as it belongs to us. And our guilty record has been counted on him. Friends, this is the amazing substitution that God has given for us and to us when we put our faith in Jesus. If you're not a Christian, this is the great news we proclaim. God welcomes sinners who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus alone. Let me ask you this morning, consider yourself, look, in, look into your heart, ask yourself, Am I among those who have been, who has been welcomed by God? Friends, if you have not yet responded to Jesus, respond to him today. Put your faith and trust in Christ for salvation. And you too can walk out of this service before you head out of those doors. You too can be among those who have been welcomed by God. In the gospel God welcomes us. But if you continue to live your life ignoring this gospel, if you continue to delay responding to this gospel, then there's no guarantee what will happen to you when you leave this place, what will happen to you this week, next month. 
before that judgment seat comes, before any of us and all of us will stand before that judgment seat, consider the invitation God gives you today. If you'd like to know more what that means, I would love to talk to you after the service is closed. Or I encourage you to talk to anyone here who's a Christian. What it means to experience the peace with God by which we are welcomed. Do you have the assurance of that welcome? For those of us who have experienced that assurance, Christian, do you remember when God welcomed you? For some of us, it was recent. For others, it was decades ago. Remember the peace you have experienced with God when you have come to know that the guilt of your sin was lifted, paid by somebody else. And now you have free access to this God. He welcomes you into his presence. You remember that experience? That same experience, Paul tells us, we are to extend to each other, to all those who have been welcomed by God. So the reason why we should live and cultivate gospel unity is because of this peace and sweetness of being welcomed by God is what should characterize our interactions with one another. Well, friends, this means that if God has welcomed us, we have an obligation to welcome each other in Christ. Our unity in the church is not based on the fact that we have the same age or the same life stage or the same interests or the same skin color or similar culture experiences. The foundation why we should welcome each other is because God has welcomed us in Christ. So, when you and I are about to have an argument with each other, when you and I are tempted to quarrel with one another on various matters of opinions, remember this. You're about to start a fight with someone else who has been welcomed by God. Remember that you're, you're, the one whom you are tempted to fight with has been welcomed by God. God has welcomed him or her just as, just as God has welcomed you. Not because you deserved it, not because you worked for it, not because you proved yourself good enough to be given that welcome. Remember how God welcomed you and treat the other person on the same basis. Well, friends, for some of us this morning, this invitation to welcome the other might actually be an invitation to welcome someone who is in your physical family. Is there another believer with whom you are at odds in your family? Welcome him. Welcome her. For others, this person might be a member of this congregation. Welcome him. Welcome her. Isn't it amazing how the doctrine of justification by faith alone affects our unity? We cannot be united in Christ if we are not clear on the, justice, on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Friends, let doctrine affect our relationships. A second reason why we should foster gospel unity is because you're not the master. Look at verse 4. Who are you 
to pass judgment on the servant of another. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. As the master, the Lord alone is able to make his servants stand. God is the ultimate source of our, of the, our ability to, to stand up. What a beautiful picture of God. He's not only the God who welcomes us through Jesus, but he also upholds us through Jesus. When God calls us to himself and welcomes us into his family, he's not leaving us alone. He upholds us. He, as the master, is able to make all his servants stand. That's why we read earlier in our service uh, an article about the perseverance of the saints. Those whom God truly saves, he enables to persevere. And that's significant. This is great confidence. But this confidence affects the way we should treat each other. This has implications in our disagreements with one another. We must recognize that other people, even fellow members in this congregation, are not our servants. We are not the ultimate source of holding others up. God is. So when we're tempted to fight and quarrel with others about the Christian life convictions, we must remember that in the third area of, of charity issues, God is their master, and God is able to make them stand, even if what they believe about certain issues is different than the way we believe and how we process certain issues. Friends, sometimes we get into fights and quarrels with each other because we have a higher view of ourselves than we ought. We have a higher view of our responsibilities than we ought. We hold others up to our standard as if they are accountable to us. And Paul's second reason is simple. It's as if he's saying in 21, 21st century language, get off your high horse. You are not the master to pass on judgment on the servant of another. So don't view yourself as a master of others. Friends, some people who are combative in spirit would benefit greatly from this reminder. We're not the master. We're not the ultimate standard of anything. God is. Now, there's two important clarifications to this. Because some may hear this word and say, Great, I'm just going to live my Christian life on my own. I don't need others to tell me how to live the Christian life. I'm just going to go solo. And there's two important principles in other places of Scripture that we must be careful to hear what we just heard from, from this passage in Romans 14 so far. The two clarifications is this. This does not mean that we as individuals are our highest authority when it comes to our spiritual lives. The Bible makes it very clear that God has delegated a body of believers called the local church to have oversight over our spiritual lives. We don't have the authority to declare ourselves Christians or to be removed from the, to, from, to be removed from the Christian community. Jesus delegates that authority over individual Christians to the life of local churches. We see that in Matthew 18, 15 through 18, where Jesus 
gives the keys of the kingdom, not to individual Christians, but to the gathered Christians gathered in local churches. So that what Christians bound together in local churches, what they agree to bind and loose, represents the rule of Christ. And we as individual Christians don't, that, don't have that authority on our own. That's why, as Christians, we are accountable to one another in the local church. And Christ gives spiritual leaders in the office of pastors whom Christ will hold accountable for how they have led, cared for, and protected the sheep that Christ died for. So just because God is our ultimate master does not mean that as Christians we should not submit to spiritual leaders that God has raised up in local churches. Hebrews 13, 17 is a wonderful guardrail against our individualistic, superficial, I mean spiritual lives. Submit to your spiritual leaders as to those who will give an account for you so that they can do this work with joy, otherwise be no benefit to you. So when it comes to the life of the local church, Christ has delegated the authority of spiritual oversight to the congregation over my life as an individual and over your life as an individual. The second clarification is, just because this passage says, do not pass judgment over others because you're not their master, does not mean that churches are now off the hook in terms of practicing church discipline. Go home and read 1 Corinthians 5, where the Apostle Paul makes very clear that actually as, as gathered saints, we have a responsibility to watch over one another and to judge each other. In matters of sin, we're called to do that. But again, when it's not matters of sin, when it's matters of Christian charity, that's where we are commanded not to judge each other. Do you see how this works? That's why we want to make sure that when you hear this language, we are not to judge or pass judgment over each other because we are not the masters of others. That refers to us as individual Christians, and it does not refer, refer to our life together as a church and the authority that God has delegated to the church. If you have questions about how that plays further, I would love to talk to you uh, after the service. The point is that Romans 14 does not contradict other passages in the New Testament, like 1 Corinthians 5 or Matthew 18, where Christians are called to judge one another and affirm the validity of our genuine faith and genuine Christian life. Well, friends, how do we reconcile these things together? When our differences are not gospel issues, they're not statement of faith issues, or they're not fighting sin issues. That's when we go to Romans 14 and apply the principle, do not pass judgment over each other. Two reasons why we should not pass judgment over each other. Because God has welcomed us, and because we are not the masters of others. So how do we do this? We understand the why. Why should we foster gospel unity? But how do we go about it? Three ways from these first 12 verses. And by God's grace, we will continue and look at other reasons next time, next week. Three ways this morning that we can 
learn from this passage about how to cultivate gospel unity in the matters of charity. Way number one, be united in the same motivations. Be united in the same motivations. Look at verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all day alike, all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, to the Christians that Paul wrote, the two issues, two examples of disunity that they had a hard time with uh, were what to eat. I might say some were full vegans and, uh, and others ate anything and everything. And uh, another issue was celebrating certain days while others said, no, all days are alike. I mean, imagine if I came to you and said, hey, we're not going to have we're not going to celebrate Christmas. I don't know. I, I think I would be fired. <laughs> I mean, trust the fact that we don't put Christmas songs in the very first Sunday after November. Get some of us disgruntled. Every year I forget that I should start Christmas songs the, the Sunday after Thanksgiving. And every year I hear about it. Imagine if we went the whole month of December without celebrating Christmas. I'm sure you'd find a verse somewhere in the Bible. Or, or Easter. Imagine if we went through and missed Easter. I mean, some of us have a hard time the fact that we don't have Easter egg hunt celebrations. And yet, you turn to the Bible... And there's no place in the Bible where we're commanded to celebrate Christmas. There is one place, very clearly, that we're supposed to celebrate the death of Jesus. It's in the Lord's Supper. And Christians made a big deal about the resurrection of Jesus by the fact that they changed the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. So every Sunday is an Easter celebration. Those we are commanded. Outside of that, we should not get ruffled up if we don't celebrate certain days the way we are used to or expected to. Again, I just gave you an example of the kind of things that even today we can get ruffled up about celebrating certain days. We know that Sunday is a, a day when, when Christians should gather for corporate assembling together. The book of Hebrews says, do not forsake your assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. That's clear. That's not a matter of conscience. That's a biblical command. So, so how do we go about working through such distinctions, such differences? Well, how do we, Paul says, well, each of us should be convinced in our own mind. It's like, well, I'm convinced about Easter. I'm convinced about Christmas. Well, no, 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 there's, there's a little more to that. What should guide our convictions? Two motivations that Paul brings up in this passage. These are not the only two that we should have, but these are the two he brings up. Two motivations that we should be united around. And those are to honor the Lord and to act out of gratitude to Him. The convictions we should form our minds around 
should have these two motivations, and we should be united in these two motivations, regardless of the forms we take to honor the Lord through what we do, through our convictions, and to act out of gratitude to Him. Let's look at each of these. Look at verse 6. He says, The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, and the one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Do you hear what's being repeated in both of these camps? The honor of the Lord, the desire to honor of the Lord is repeated three times in both parties. This means that we are not dealing here with someone who's just doing whatever they're convinced of out of their sinful desire. It's not just a subjective conviction. It's the seeking to honor the Lord. This is not about the person who is living in his flesh versus living in the Spirit. Both parties, in this example, both parties are living out their forms, their choices, because they want to honor the Lord. Now you may ask, how do I know what honors the Lord? Well, a good place to start would be looking here. What he has told us in this book will tell us what what honors him. So our desire to honor the Lord is not just a subjective, I feel this honors the Lord. It's always under the guidance of Scripture. A key part of honoring the Lord is to know what God's Word has said and, and to live according to it. If I am living contrary to what God has revealed in His Word, be sure that you're not honoring the Lord but rebelling against Him. So when you talk to someone with a different conviction, consider taking time to ask if what they're doing is, one, out of a desire to honor the Lord, or they're just doing their own thing. And if they say they are doing it out of desire to honor the Lord, you can ask, hey, help me understand from Scripture how you connect the dots from Scripture to that desire of honoring the Lord through this particular way you're going about it. That's a much more useful conversation than just passing judgment or despising the one who, has, who thinks differently than you are. Paul is assuming here that both parties are doing this motivation of honoring the Lord. Friends, if, if, if our convictions are formed out of selfishness or sinful cravings, those are not godly convictions. In such situations, we have a responsibility not to restrain from judging others, but to lovingly confront others, to bring it up in a gentle, loving way. The other motivation that we see here is that we should be united in the act of making these choices out of a heart filled with gratitude to God. Gratitude to God is what motivates our choices of living in a God-honoring way. I'm choosing to make life choices that honor God, not from a sense of duty, but from a sense of being grateful. I want to honor the Lord, not because my church says so, not even because the Bible says so, even though that's a good reason. You should honor the Lord because the Bible says so. But I want to honor the Lord out of a heart of gratitude because of what God has already done for me in Jesus. Oh, friends, if our convictions, when Paul says, be fully convinced, if our personal convictions do not pass these two tests 
of honoring the Lord and living out of gratitude to God, then our conscience and our convictions most likely needs a tune-up. They may be going in the wrong direction. And we actually need each other in those conversations to help, up, help each other in the tuning up of our consciences. The, by the way, the lack of honoring God and giving thanks to Him are the two primary characteristics of a godless humanity that Paul brought out and described in Romans chapter 1. Remember Romans 1? They chose neither to honor God nor to give Him thanks. And Paul says, Christian, we are to be different than the godless, rebellious, in bondage humanity. And when we, when we have experienced the grace of God, where God changes our hearts, where now we want to honor Him and give Him thanks and live our lives out of gratitude for Him, when we get that and experience that, we have freedom to live in charity with one another on the issues that are different among, amongst each other. Oh, friends, even if others have different convictions, consider this. Are they having the same motivations as you do? To honor God and to live a life out of gratitude to God. If that's the case, be charitable. Do not pass judgment. Do not despise. A second way. The first way is be united in the same motivations. Second way to, go, to foster this gospel unity, be united under the same new master. Be united under the same new master. Look at verses 7 and 8. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We who divide over issues, we who have different convictions about various matters, we are the Lord's. We're saving, serving the same master. In these verses, we have a clear and explicit summary of what the gospel produces in us. It changes who has the title over our lives. It's no longer you. It's no longer me. God has the title over our lives. When we put our trust in Jesus for salvation, we are signing off the right to live for ourselves. When we put our faith in Jesus, we sign off the right to live for ourselves. But this is not just a, oh my goodness, I didn't know this is what I signed up for. Friends, look at the hope this offers. We both live to the Lord and die to the Lord. That means Jesus, as our new master, he's our master not over our lives, but over our deaths. So even in the grave, when our earthly remains will be laid breathless, when this government will have no authority over you because you will be dead, you will not need to pay taxes. Praise God. 
You will not be condemned to jail if you commit a crime because you're dead already. Nobody has authority over you when you're dead. There is no master. And actually, not even you have authority over yourself. You've lost the, the, the right, the ability to have rights over you when you are laid in the grave. But there is a master who still has rights over you even when you're dead. And that master, when he comes again, he will shout out and call out, come to life, my dear ones. Because he is Lord, he has the master rights and abilities over your life when you are breathing here on this earth and when you will be breathless, buried in a grave. He's the master. Paul says, why can we live and should live in unity with one another? It's because we're united not only with the same motivations to honor him and give him thanks. We are united because both of us have the same new master. Our life, whether in living or dying, we are the Lord's. Praise be to God. So what that means, dear friends, is we have freedom to allow each other to, to think differently about certain things because we have the same new master. But I want to say also something that in the last, last 30 years plus, there's been a, a, a rumor or a, a type of teaching about the gospel that promoted the view that when you get saved, you just get Jesus as your Savior but not as your Lord. And then if you really want to be a really good Christian, then you later get him as a Lord as well. So pastors like John MacArthur wrote a book confronting that kind of distortion of the gospel. And those who were critiqued by pastors like John MacArthur uh, dubbed the teaching as lordship salvation. They didn't like it. That no, you, 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 you're now putting more to the gospel by claiming that Jesus has to be not only your savior, but your Lord in order to be saved. And the reality is the apostle Paul would say, absolutely, that is the point. Look at verse 9. Here's why Christ died and lived again. Verse 9. To this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. You cannot have Jesus as your Savior without having him as your Lord. Jesus didn't die just to save people. Jesus died to own them again to himself, to change the, the ownership rights from ourselves to himself. Oh, friends, this is wonderful news. Isn't it amazing that this Jesus who conquered death for us wants to be not only a rescuer, but a master. And under his wings, we will be protected. Just like Pastor Ryan taught us two Sundays ago from Psalm 91. We will stand under his wings, whether in life or in death. He's an amazing master to be under. Friends, this helps us not judge one another over matters that are charity issues. So ask yourself, is the person that you are debating with, tempted to fight with, tempted to quarrel with, do they have the same master as you? Are they seeking to live their lives 
under the same new master as you. If so, then don't let the differences divide you when you have the same master. If he's calling you to serve in the same church, don't let that be a reason to divide you. We may have different forms of how we live our Christian lives. We may have different convictions about, about certain things in the Christian life, but let this principle, fact that we are united on the same new master, bind us together. That's why the freedom of a Christian conscience is always a freedom under the lordship of Christ. We don't simply say we believe in Christian the freedom of a Christian conscience. We believe in the freedom of the Christian conscience under the lordship of Christ. Way number three, we foster gospel unity by remembering that we will be united under the same judgment seat. We foster gospel unity by remembering that we will be united under God's judgment seat. All of us under the same seat of judgment. Look at verses 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? And why do you despise your brother? This is a third time in these 11, 12 verses that Paul brings up the challenge of passing judgment or despising others. You can see that he's really intent on trying to correct us to stop passing judgment on each other. And what's the last clue he gives us to help us stop passing judgment on each other? He says, for we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. We will all give an account to the Lord. And he says, he gives two, two quotations, one from the Old Testament, from the book of Isaiah 40, chapter 45, and the other from Philippians chapter 2. He says, for it is written... As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. The emphasis in the quotations that Paul gives is on the fact that each human being will give an account to God on their own. Friends, before the judgment seat of God, none of you can stand with your pastors next to you trying to put, a good, put in a good word for you. None of you can stay behind your parents saying, well, my parents did it better than I did. I think I'll have some, some traction with God because of my parents. None of, none of us will be able to stand with our good friends, our Christian heroes, and say, well, he'll stay next to me and help me. No, these verses make it very clear. Each of us will give an account of ourselves, by ourselves, to God. Our friends will not be judging in our place. Our friends will not be judged in our place. We will be judged by ourselves. So we should seek to persuade others of biblical teaching on various subject matters, but at the end of the day, you and I must realize that God will judge them according not to our standard, but according to this standard. And that frees us up. We may persuade others with our convictions, or seek to persuade them from Scripture. But at the end of the day, we must say, you know, you may have a different conviction over this issue. You will give an account to the Lord for this. I won't. That frees me up not to have a Messiah complex. Not thinking that you're going to be judged by my standards. I'm going to the Word. We can debate and have good, godly conversations. But at the end of the day, I must release you. I must rem remember 
you will give an account on your own. I will give an account on my own. In this season, let us help each other be ready for that day. But let us not have Messiah complexes as if others will be saved um, because of our standards. Well, friend, consider how our unity before the judgment throne of God is a motivation to allow differences in the freedom of conscience under the Lordship of Christ. It frees us up to allow others to have different convictions. So this text challenges us how to pursue gospel unity with our fellow brothers and sisters in the local church. Paul is challenging us and telling us, foster gospel unity. Foster it for the sake of God's welcoming us. Fostering for the sake of realizing that we are not the masters. God is through Jesus. And remember how to do so. We, we, we foster this gospel unity by remembering that we are united in our motivations. We're united in this, under the same new master. And we will be united under the same judgment seat. Let's pray. Father, help us to stop passing judgments over each other, over matters that should be charity matters. Give us discernment to know what are the charity matters. Help us, O oh Lord, to consider our own hearts. Help us not to despise those who are different than us. Father, help us for the sake of Christ to live united in this gospel unity so that it will be evident to the whole world that Christ, our Redeemer, has come. Help us to put our gaze on Christ so that we will be united together because of him and through him. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.